Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Suzanne Blumpson and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the global news stories that matter. Concerns about maritime security in the Gulf are rising as relations between Iran and the West deteriorate over the slow breakdown of the nuclear deal struck by Tehran and world powers in 2015. Iran's economy has been badly hit by the reimposition of US sanctions, and in response, Iran says it is no longer sticking to agreed limits on its enriched uranium stockpile. Tom O'Sullivan discusses whether the deal can be saved with Michael Peel in Brussels, Najmeh Bazorgma in Tehran, and our Middle East editor, Andrew England. Michael, if I could start with you, in terms of the European position at the moment, President Emmanuel Macron's advisor has gone to Tehran this week. There seem to be different attempts by different European powers to try and revive the deal or at least make sure that it doesn't collapse. What is the latest in terms of the European position on what they think they can possibly do, given the US opposition to this deal? The European position all along has been to try to save this deal. The problem for them is that Iran says that it wants the Europeans in particular, as well as the other deal signatories, Russia and China, to replace economic benefits under the deal that Iran has lost because the US has reimposed sanctions. The Europeans have made some moves in that direction, including a new trade channel to protect dealings between Iran and European countries and possibly others from the US sanctions. But It's been very slow. It's only just become operational. And Tehran says that it's not enough. So the Europeans are in this bind where they really want to keep the deal going, but they are not really in a position economically to give Tehran what it wants. And with President Macron's advisor going to Tehran, is there a new offer available there? Are they trying to carry some kind of message? The main point of this trip, as announced by the president's office in Paris, is de-escalation. There's a widespread worry in Europe and elsewhere that the situation is getting out of hand, not just because of the US withdrawal and the moves Iran has been making towards breaching certain aspects of the agreement, but also because of the security situation in the Gulf and the attacks on oil tankers and so on. In terms of being able to offer something more than exists already, European diplomats and analysts don't really see that there's something that they can do that is really going to change the game here. So it's really about persuading Iran to stay in the deal, to try and de-escalate tensions and possibly to try and look for alternative ways of improving economic benefits to Tehran. And an obvious one would be to open up more avenues for Iranian oil exports, particularly to countries such as China, which, of course, is also a deal signatory. On that point, Andrew, Michael was talking about an escalation in tensions. We saw an example of this only yesterday when a British warship was forced to intervene to ensure the safe passage of a BP-owned oil tanker through the Straits of Hormuz. Apparently there had been an attempt by three Iranian vessels to block its path, although Iran denies this. Can you explain the background to this further escalation? And the incident came on the same day that Hassan Rouhani, Iran's president, warned the UK that it would face consequences for impounding an Iranian tanker last week. What is it we think happened there? And can you explain just why that particular incident was so significant? 
Yeah, it all came at a very inopportune time for Europe, as Michael says, whilst the E3, the UK, Germany and France are trying to de-escalate tensions. Now, this ship was apparently loaded with Iranian oil and it sailed around Africa and went through the Strait of Gibraltar. And when it was off the coast of Gibraltar, the UK was made aware of this and it was suspected of heading to Syria, which is under EU sanctions. So the UK said they had no choice but to apprehend the vessel. Not because of the US sanctions on Iran, which the UK, along with France and Germany, is opposed to because they're trying to save the nuclear deal, but because of these European sanctions on Syria. Now, Iran has already responded and called it an illegal move because it's from their perspective, it's another example of hostility towards Iran. They will perceive the UK to be doing the US's bidding. So it kind of puts the UK in an awkward position. On the one hand, along with the French and the Germans, they're trying to reassure the Iranian government they are genuine about their efforts to ease the economic sanctions. On the other hand, they seem to be taking hostile action by impounding this ship. So on top of everything else, it's just another complicating factor, another area of tension between Iran and the West. علت این که ما امروز گام دوم کاهش تعهدات خودمون رو شروع می‌کنیم به این دلیل هست که اروپا و بقیه اعضای مشارکت کننده در برجام نتونستن خواسته ما از that was a clip of Iran's Deputy Foreign Minister Abbas Arachi explaining on Sunday that Iran had decided to reduce its commitments to the nuclear deal because Europe had not been able to do anything noteworthy to help Iran safeguard its oil income. Najme, does the government still believe it's possible to save the deal? And does it still have faith in the Europeans and their ability to provide what the Iranians have always wanted, which was sort of economic benefits to signing up to this deal in the first place? I think the Islamic Republic still hopes the nuclear deal can be saved. Iran hopes the sanctions will be lifted. That's the main reason they want the nuclear deal to be saved. As you know, Iran's long-term ambition is being the top power in the region, which means they need economic development, for which they need these sanctions to be lifted as they are a major obstacle. But now Iran says it waited for one year after the US withdrew from the nuclear agreement and it reimposed sanctions, and Europeans have not come up with any solutions and alternatives. That's why they are saying that they can no longer unilaterally fulfill commitments under the nuclear deal But this does not mean Iran is now going for escalation of tensions or Iran is closing the doors to negotiations with the U.S. What Iran is demanding the U.S. is to stop all sanctions before any negotiations to begin, which for the time being sounds like an impossible condition that Iran is putting. Whether Iran will stick to this condition, we have to wait to see, but for now, what Iran is doing is to prove that U.S. sanctions have been ineffective and Iran is going to withstand the pressure. One thing that they are doing is they are breaching the limits on the nuclear program. And I think it's probably part of Iran's efforts not to go to any negotiating table in the future with empty hands. But isn't Iran also I mean, essentially trying to corner the Europeans by saying, you haven't done enough. The US has pulled out under Donald Trump. The Europeans now need to come to the fore. Without them, this whole thing falls apart. And actually, the reality of it is that the Europeans can do very little about this. Yes, Iran is conscious of Europeans' ability under these circumstances. But let's not forget that Iran doesn't have lots of choices. And I don't think Iran wants 
Europeans to have alliance with the U.S. against Iran. Iran wants to keep the U.S. and Europeans divided on Iran. That's why Iran is not withdrawing from the nuclear agreement. Iran is breaching some limits on the nuclear agreement without withdrawing, at least for now. And how is this sort of situation playing out in Tehran at the moment? I mean, in terms of ordinary people, there have been tensions ever since the deal was done, really, that ordinary citizens weren't seeing the benefits of the lifting of sanctions, the things that they were promised back in 2015, 2016. So what's the mood like now? There is a lot of hopelessness in the country. And those who can leave the country are either thinking of leaving or have already left with their money or without their money. But those who have stayed, they think they have no other choice. So there is that feeling of hopelessness, being stuck in the country, and not being able to plan for their future. I would say it's one of the worst times, as far as I can remember, under the Islamic Republic. But it's interesting that Iran is calmer than last year this time, when people were panic buying commodities and hedging their savings against the inflation by buying foreign currencies and gold coins. We don't see that level of concern this year, even though people remain upset about the decline in their purchasing power and they remain fearful of any war. But for many people, there is no alternative to the Islamic Republic inside and outside the country. And there is not much trust in the administration of Donald Trump or maybe any U.S. administration. People are worried about facing the same fates of Syrians, Iraqis and Afghans. So for now, I can say there is some kind of numbness that you see in public opinion. People continue their life and have found some certainty in the current uncertain situation. How has all this affected the balance of power between Iran's hardliners and moderates, such as President Rouhani? It has certainly undermined Mr. Rouhani and reformists who backed him. Mr. Rouhani, let's not forget that he gambled on the nuclear deal for his election in 2013 and re-election in 2017. But this doesn't mean political infighting is leading to a confused approach toward the U.S. I think all factions are wary of an accidental war, and we can see good level of unity between different factions when it comes to foreign policy, especially at this sensitive time. The policy is no war with the U.S., no escalation, no negotiations with the U.S. when sanctions are in place. So all factions are speaking one voice now. At the same time, we see support for the warning Iran sends to the U.S. and regional states that if they go too far, Iran is ready to defend itself. One example is all factions backed the shooting down of a U.S. drone last month. So domestic politics is getting more complicated with this issue, but Iranian leaders have managed to contain the power struggle not to affect the foreign policy. Are you surprised at that appearance of unity and how long do you think it can hold? Because clearly there are big divisions within the regime. For now, I'm not too surprised because we saw a similar kind of unity when nuclear negotiations were happening because Iran's supreme leader backed the negotiations and they went on until it reached an agreement. And now it's the same. 
I think we will see more differences when Iran probably decides one day to go into negotiations with the U.S. But for the time being, the differences over foreign policy have not surfaced. Michael, could I just return to you? Najmi was talking there about hopelessness in Tehran amongst some of the people. Is there any sense of that same hopelessness amongst some of the political leaders in Europe as well, that they're desperate for this deal to survive, but in reality they don't know how to possibly keep it going while Donald Trump is in the White House? Yes, people have been saying that privately for a long time, and lately Federica Mogherini, the EU's foreign policy chief, has said publicly that it's becoming increasingly difficult to sustain the deal. A further complicating factor, of course, is that the Europeans share some US concerns about Iran outside of the nuclear deal, such as over Iran's ballistic missile program, over its role in conflicts in the Middle East, and over some assassination plots on European soil that Europeans blame on the regime in Tehran, which denies responsibility. So that also colours the general political engagement between Europe and Tehran, and it means that it's an uncomfortable one in many ways. On the one hand, attempting to make common cause to save the nuclear deal, but disagreeing often quite strongly in these other areas. One possibility that diplomats talk about here is maybe if we can keep this going long enough, the dynamic between the US and Iran might change and that perhaps if at some point there's a conclusion in Washington that the policy of so-called maximum pressure on Iran through imposing ever tighter economic sanctions isn't working and isn't bringing Iran to the negotiating table, then maybe there might be some kind of change of strategy, maybe a change of personnel in the US administration. Of course, John Bolton, the national security advisor, is historically very hawkish on Iran. Should the deal collapse, how big an issue would that be for the Europeans? I mean, they've put an awful lot of time and effort in this, not just since 2015, but in the decade before that as well. What might they do if it does collapse? What is plan B, effectively? Well, it would be very damaging the EU sees a deal on Iran's nuclear program as very important for their own neighbourhood security. So there's that very tangible impact that it would have. And then there is the impact that this Iran deal was seen in the EU as a great and rare success, perhaps, of EU diplomacy. As for Plan B, it isn't really perhaps quite at that stage yet. They want to keep the deal going, and I'm not sure there is a great Plan B that will actually help them to achieve what they want. And the problem for them, just as the engagement with Tehran is uncomfortable for Europe for reasons I've described, so is the engagement with the US in that they will not want to be in a situation where they are tied to a US policy of maximum pressure on Iran. Andrew, both Najme and Michael were talking there about the mood in Tehran and European capitals. But if the deal were to collapse, the implications of it would extend way beyond the European capitals and indeed Tehran, but to the whole Middle East region. What would be the impact? Yeah, well, I think you've got to look at the Middle East not as a homogenous region. I mean, there are some in the region that actually supported Trump's decision to pull out of the nuclear accord. So Saudi Arabia, which sees Iran as one of its main regional rivals, or its main regional rival, the United Arab Emirates, and of course Israel. And then you've got other countries, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, 
Yemen, but is in conflict, that have ties to Iran and is hosting Iranian proxies, so Iraqi militia, Syrian militia, Hezbollah in Lebanon, etc. So there's a very different picture, but I think for everybody it would be a concern. Because even while the Saudis and the Emiratis support the idea of pressure on Iran and want to reduce its role in the region, I don't think they want war. They've been pretty tempered in their language since the attack on oil tankers in the Gulf in May and in June. The UAE is very aware that if a conflict did erupt, either deliberately or inadvertently, it could quite easily become a target of Iranian retaliatory action. Saudi Arabia, the same. There are Houthi rebels in Yemen who the Saudis are fighting. They've already fired rockets across the Saudi border that have hit airports. So I think if the deal collapses, you would see an increase in tensions. And as Najmeh said earlier on, while all sides say they don't want war, the concern is a miscalculation or an accidental conflict erupts. And then that would bring in the entire region. Iraq, for example, hosts US troops and has Iraqi militias that are aligned to Iran. So you could see indirect conflicts, asymmetrical warfare erupting around the region if we went to a conflict. And that's the real fear, I think, for the region. And it's a region that's had a long history of conflicts, being unstable. The last thing it really needs is another war. So I think everybody would like to see the situation contained. The problem, if the deal collapses, is you've cut off the main diplomatic channel between Iran and the West. That was Tom O'Sullivan, Deputy Analysis Editor, talking to Najmeh Bazorgma in Tehran, Michael Peel in Brussels, and Andrew England, Middle East Editor, here in London. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our recent episodes on Greece's new government, China's dilemma over Hong Kong, or what a female-driven workplace would look like, you can find them on all the usual podcast platforms. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.